Hey, friends. You might have thought that I forgot about you. I, I didn't. Actually, there was just a slight programming note. Instead of Tuesdays, episodes of the Zach Sweets podcast, ZSP, will be releasing on Thursdays, every other Thursday. So follow the Zach Sweets podcast on Instagram and uh, look out for the newest episode of the Zach Sweets podcast. Let's get to the show. Welcome to the Zach Sweets Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Sweets. And today on the show, I have Lillian Williams and Jason Gross, two chief of staffs from the Missouri legislature, join me and talk about their time serving the state and serving multiple senators and seeing multiple legislative sessions. Now, the legislative session in Missouri has just ended, and so we hear from them on what they heard on some big issues like Medicaid expansion and uh, police reform in the state of Missouri. And of course, don't forget the ending segment, but I digress. Trust me, you won't want to miss it. Here we are. Welcome to uh, the Zach Sweets podcast, ZSP. I have uh, two folks with me today um, that I worked with down in the state Senate um, in my, my three sessions um, or three and a half years, four sessions. And um, when we were down there, we we were unofficially the um, legislative Black Staff Caucus. And so we have the uh, the doctor, the PhD, and the chairwoman of the unofficial um, Missouri Legislative Black Staff Caucus. We have um, chair, chairwoman Lillian Williams and uh, Dr. Reverend Jason Gross with us on the show. <laughs> Dr. Reverend Jason Gross. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for jumping on and taking time to be on ZSP. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate the invite, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, you know what, Jason? Uh, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you both. But I really appreciate you because uh, I think I got a message from Lillian uh, after Henry O's episode. And she was just a little salty about not being on the show. I had y'all in my heart. We just hadn't gotten there yet. But so. How did he get a, get an invite before me? He reached out and it, it happened. It was a great episode. You should go check it out. Um, but I appreciate you listening. <laughs> but here we are. Uh, I have here's what was really cool. So I try to make sure I prepare for the for the episodes and make sure that I know who these folks are uh, before they come on my show. Actually, I know who they are, but how to at least introduce them. So we have uh, Lillian Williams and Jason Gross, who are both um, chiefs of staff in the Missouri Senate, state Senate down in Jeff City, uh, and have been uh, for um, served multiple senators. We'll get to that. But what I want to start with is the fact that both of you went to Lincoln University. And um, for those that don't know, Lincoln University is a uh, public, historically black land grant university in Jeff City, uh, actually not far from the Capitol. We would actually they would make their gym available for staff and um, and legislators to come play basketball in the evenings. 
Uh, so that was really cool to kind of see them do that behind the scenes. Um, but uh, they were founded in 1866 uh, by uh, African-American veterans of the American Civil War. An incredible history uh, that also includes, I went to Mizzou, uh, a student uh, who graduated from Lincoln, Lloyd Gaines, um, who was, uh, for those that might not know, was the black student who applied to the University of Missouri Law. Um, and uh, they did not only denied his um, admission, um, but uh, he disappeared. And uh, one of those cold cases of the time, um, but that lawsuit that kind of started from from his application eventually had the Supreme Court rule that the Missouri uh, Law School had to admit him. I thought that was really cool. And when you look at more of the history of uh, Lincoln grads and Lincoln itself, um, it has had a huge, not just contribution to Missouri, but to the region as a whole. Um, talk to me about y'all's time at Missouri's HBCU uh, and, that, and like what sticks with, with you f- in your daily life uh, having gone to uh, Lincoln University. Well, I actually started off at Kemper Military and transferred to Lincoln my junior year. And I had always known that I was going to go to an HBCU because all my life, all my classrooms, I was the outlier person in the classroom. And I wanted to be someplace where I didn't stand out, meaning all my classes used to be all white. I wanted someplace where there was nothing but blacks in it because I wanted to be around me and feel comfortable instead of having kids say, why don't people go back to where they came from? Well, I'm from Atascadero, California. Where else am I supposed to go back to? So growing up listening to that made me want to find and seek out an HBCU. And when I had the opportunity to go to Lincoln, I went there for my last two years. I played on their basketball team for two years. I was ROTC, so I was um, down at ROTC, um, the Blue Tiger Battalion, for two years. Um, I was in the middle of commissioning, but... I was released because of medical issues on my knee, but I enjoyed it because you knew that the people there were there to make sure that you would succeed. And there was no question about it, that if a teacher stopped to talk to you, ask you how you're doing, they were sincere in that. And I liked that. And I liked that it was small classrooms and the community that was there on the campus. So I enjoyed, that's what I got out of it. I, I lived on campus too for a year. I don't know if Jason lived on campus or not. But um, that was even more fun. The union parties, hanging out in the quad down by the student union or something. Are you it, Greek? It, I am Greek. I'm a Delta. Oh, all day all long. Fall 98, Alpha Theta. Jason, I'm surprised I had to ask, and that wasn't just offered up. Right. Then it didn't come out automatically. <laughs> See, my story, my story is a little bit of the opposite. Uh, growing up in the inner cities of Gary, Indiana, uh, all my schools I went to was black. And so, um, so it was always heavily pushed uh, by going to college to HBCU. And um, actually, I was originally intending uh, to go into the military um, after high school. Uh, but there were some other situations where that didn't, didn't pan out. Uh, I also was a transfer. Uh, I originally went to uh, another HBCU in North Carolina called Livingstone College, the Blue Bears. And so um, I was there for a semester, uh, had scholarships and different things. Uh, they had issues with the administration. So a lot of the scholarships that uh, a lot of us incoming freshmen were supposed to receive 
we never got. So we ended up having to take out more loans to get through that semester. And then after that, I ended up transferring out. Um, I wanted to be closer to home. My mom wanted me to come closer to home. But the only two uh, HBCUs closer to Indiana was, uh, or three rather, was Harris-Stowe, Central State, and uh, Lincoln University. So I knew a ton of people from Lincoln from my high school uh, who had just graduated the previous year and some uh, a couple years beforehand. So I came down to Lincoln uh, because I already knew uh, it was a group of us there in band uh, who was part of the, uh, the university band. So I came down and uh, uh, participated in band, uh, for a couple of years, I didn't do band my whole my whole tenure there, but uh, got in student government at Lincoln. Uh, did quite a few uh, extra, uh, um, activities and different things on campus. Uh, student government is kind of well. I kind of found my my niche really. Uh, got my undergrad degree in political science, and it was actually one of the one of my professors in political science that actually uh, uh, kind of nudged me a little bit to get into politics. And so, um, and then from there, uh, she helped me get different internships um, from undergrad to graduate school internships. I did my master's at Lincoln, uh, met my wife at Lincoln. Um, so Lincoln uh, uh, would mean a lot to me and my family in that aspect. And so um, after that, uh, yeah, so we, we talked about Lincoln, so I just stayed there. But uh, yeah, Lincoln means, means a lot to us. Um, for me and my wife. And so um, graduated in 2008, undergrad, 2010 with my master's. So that's awesome. So um, what I thought was really cool, and I, I feel like I knew that both of you went to Lincoln, but um, what uh, just getting ready and looking, it just kind of struck me that not only did both of you go to Lincoln, um, Lincoln kind of helped push along or spark your interest in, in politics and governance uh, as well. I found an article that you both were, uh, it's kind of old, 2013, but it was, a, it was an article that uh, you both had actually uh, given quotes for. And, uh, but one, one thing that really struck me and Jason, you mentioned it, you both found your uh, spouses, uh, your time <laughs> at Lincoln. So, uh, you yeah. know, love at HBCU um, is well, a correction. side effect of that. Correction, I met my husband the day after I graduated from Lincoln. Okay. He was but two was years it, was it Was it at a Lincoln event? We were finishing up a class and we were studying in Mexico when he was in that class mm. for Spanish. And so mm-hmm. that's where I met him. But I had already graduated. I was just finishing up that last part. So, so Lincoln still brought y'all together. <laughs> You know, yes. He graduated from Lincoln. His parents graduated from Lincoln. Really? Yes. That's really cool. Yep. You know, and same same thing for me. I didn't meet my wife at Lincoln. We actually met in Kansas City. And just so happened, we we both were students at Lincoln. All right, uh, so this little narrative I'm trying to weave for this story is fine. <laughs> it's it's fine. love at Lincoln. Yeah, there's love, love at Lincoln. Lincoln. It's like a, uh, here I am giving out free marketing for, for Lincoln. Uh, with <laughs> Lincoln is the bridge. Lincoln is the bridge. There you go. There you go. Well, um, my question for, for I'm going to let you two work this out. And I think it's um, going to be a pretty easy one. Who is the most senior between the two of you uh, in terms of time spent in the legislature? 
I am. (laughs) (laughs) I'll own that all day long. I am. I started over in the Capitol as an intern in 97 for then representative for today's. And I I stayed with her. Can can I I interrupt to tell you something? What? I was five years old. I was five years old. You know what? You know what? I was probably crawling, walking. I don't know. But I was five. Go ahead. Stop. See, I wasn't going to go there. Stop. See, he he, he went there. See, look. (laughs) That's why I could smell the Similac through the the, the mic here. (laughs) You know, the baby over here. Uh, no, I started with her as intern and then I graduated and still came back because my intention was to graduate from Lincoln. I, my husband and my now husband, but both of us had taken our LSATs and our plan was to go on to um, law school. I actually did get into Howard for law school. He got into Mizzou for law school. And then we realized neither of us wanted to practice law. And I knew that I can do what I wanted to do without a law degree and that only came about from the time that I spent with Senator, or excuse me, well, now she's a senator, but then Representative Days when I interned from her and the interaction I had in the House. Then she turned out of the House, ran for the Senate, and she won in 20, uh, 2002, and she hired me back on. And so I was been in the Senate since I was hired in December 2002. And so this is my, what, 19th, I'm going in my 19th session. So, and that's in the Senate alone, not counting my house, the Senate 19 years, three senators I've been with, four, yeah, three, Senator Days, Senator Chappelle Nadal, correction, four senators, Senator Days, Chappelle Nadal, Sifton, and now I'm with Senator Doug Beck. I'm the longest sitting chief of staff over in the Senate. Um, And not to mention like, how many? Don't you so bring up my age chair. again now, Zach? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> Given that you are the chair of the Legislative Black Staff Caucus, um, you'll be able to tell me how how many folks have you seen uh, that look like you um, in those offices uh, at that level through, over that time? Uh, this is the most ever. Um, at any other given time, it was probably me and one other person outside of the legislator. But as far as a staff person, there's probably be me and one other. Right now, there's Jason and in Senator Mosley's office, she has two. And in Senator um, Washington's office, there's one. So, and we finally come up to those numbers, but this is the first ever since I've worked there that we've had this many chief of staffs working in the senator's office in the Senate. That's fantastic. Because think about when you were there, it was you, Sharon, Regina, Jason, and me. That was it. Yeah. And, and I got, I got. Don't forget to say the women's office has one. Oh, yes, I forgot. Yep, Rob, so there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the most we've had ever. Out of uh, 34 senators. 34 senators. 34. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Man. Now, one way, you can, one way you can look at it is you have the longest serving male and female on here right now because there's no male that has served as long as I have. Uh, no black males that served as long as me 
No. Yeah. Well, and that's what, you know, that's what was so unique when I was down there. Um, and so my first two years were obviously um, just in the office, but then I uh, I was able to become chief of staff as well with you all. And not that I guess since you ascend to any certain place, but just the responsibility that you kind of hold with that elected official at that space mm-hmm. uh, for for what you know the state government's doing. It's pretty important, and um, it wasn't lost upon me that there weren't a lot of us. Um, but also, it wasn't lost upon me that there weren't there aren't that many opportunities that have come along. And since I have left and I've seen a few elections um, and folks are like, Hey, you work down there. Do you know if so-and-so is looking to hire staff, there's not a lot of opportunity to be legislative staff. Um, So it's, it's uh, you, you both are in a position and have been able to be in a position for some time, a a special position. Cause I remember thinking to myself, I was like, I don't know if I want to be down here and try to like, I love the job. My big thing was, if Jeff City were like in Warrensburg, you know, just outside of Kansas City or in Kansas City, where I could have both of my favorite things, um, I, I probably would have kept working down there because it's it's a really unique job. Tell me about why you choose to, to continue working in that field, because and you've seen it. I'm, you know, evidence of it. People come down there. They get um, hands on experience. Um, incredible insights and incredible relationships and then decide to do some work, government work related somewhere else. And, um, and so why are you, why do you choose to stay in Jeff city? Um, I'm here. I'm the jury's still out. (laughs) I don't know why I'm still here. No, I I have always wanted to be able to affect change and now we've gotten to a point because we have term limits here that it's the staff and it's the lobbyists that hold and keep the institutional knowledge. And with that, which makes us invaluable because there's not too many of us that can go back and say, hey, I remember that when it happened back in 06. You don't, you don't have that anymore. Or we did this because of this reason or we're fixing this because we messed it up this year. That's, and, and legislators are finding they need people like that. And I think that's how it's, it's easy for us to, not easy, but we can either stay with the district or people seek to, to want to keep you because they want somebody that actually knows what they're doing. Um, you find times that you have people that hire outside of the building that haven't been there, haven't had any kind of experience whatsoever. And they're only there for maybe a year or two because they get overwhelmed. They don't know what's going on. We. Then if you're hiring in the middle of session, you really don't know what's going on. If you, I couldn't if imagine you're... jumping into a legislative office in the middle of session when bills are already in and motion. So, and yeah. yeah. No, you can't. So for me, so for me, like Lillian was just saying, you know, uh, it started out wanting to help people, but at the same time, uh, with the whole thing of clean Missouri passing, now it's almost like a mandate because we have to, even as staff, we have to go work somewhere else out of our field, out of all the, 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 the knowledge we have, the years that we have accumulated. We have to go work in a whole nother field for two years before we can come back and do anything governmental related. And there's no uh, other state position. There's no other state position that has that attached yeah. to their employment. Yeah. We got lumped in when Clean Missouri 
passed, we got lumped in with legislators. They tried fixing it only basically to the fact that we can be liaisons with the state departments. But some of us, if we want, if we want to leave and work for an association working on one specific thing, we couldn't do that now. We couldn't, we couldn't register as a lobbyist where if you get a nice contract, Mm -hmm. lobbyists make really good money. And we can't do that unless we leave our position for two years in order to come back to do something like that. And, government within itself like nothing related to right. what we do right and yeah. so um so you can't use what. the expertise you just built up for three years in yep. the state of missouri yep and, and i remember i remember right before i left that was a conversation it was like you better you better you know put in your your letter of resignation before a certain date um, um, it, it, or if you didn't care and I made sure to just get it in just to leave it, you know what I mean? But, um, and a lot of people did that. They, yeah, a lot, there were there's a lot of people that, that left and then came yeah. back. So they weren't tied into what it was. Yeah. Now, and, granted, I didn't, I didn't lobby, but, um, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't know what the future had for me. Um, and there was a lot of that conversation and I think about you all and, you know, Lily, and I think, I had this conversation with you before I decided to look for opportunities to get back to Kansas city. Um, because, uh, it's not easy, you know, being, it's like, all right, Hey, my center is now termed out on this podcast. I've talked about term limits probably too much, but, uh, with how short term limits are, you have a term you've rode with a Senator for eight years. Um, and then you are the institutional knowledge. Uh, it, what, you know, what happens, you, you know, something could happen where a Senator doesn't pick you up and put right. you on their staff. Um, and in a, in a world of clean Missouri, I think a well-intentioned bill, but like you said, it, it just lumped in staff. It seems really, it seemed to me at least um, like it, that, that was, went a step too far because then staff, you, you're holding back their, the potential, you know, gainful employment somewhere else. Yep. But um, in these yeah. positions, we read a lot, we research a lot. So it's, mm-hmm. you're constantly learning stuff. So it's not like somebody's coming here to tell, they tell you that they want you to do something. But a lot of times on my downtime, I'm reading up on things that is affecting other places that might potentially come here and you hold on to that or something's going on and you catch up on what exactly that you're this year. Cause I've been working for a new Senator for the first time and he's a union person. He's a pipe fitter by trade. And he was working with mechanical licensure. Never dealt with that before because my past Senator was a lawyer and dealt with all tort reform stuff. I had to get smart quick on how licensing went and how certification went and who does what this and there real fast, because that was the fight that he did for this session. Never worked on it before, but I had to learn about it. I had to learn and research about it. But so I can't take that anywhere else with me because I have to go someplace for two years before I can come back and say, if I wanted to work with ACLU or something like that, I can't do that. But it's not because somebody told us, it's me educating myself so I can be effective in my position. And that's held against me, which is not fair in my You know, you know while, while we're having this conversation, I'm gonna go ahead and throw this out there too. Um, although there's not, opportunity, not a lot of opportunities here in Jeff City uh, in government, there's not a lot of opportunities for people like us here in government as well. Uh, You have different elected officials or executive offices that say they're looking for uh, minorities for diversity. 
well, I live here in town. Lillian lives here in town. And there's never opportunities for us to advance, even to work for an executive in state government. So even in that, um, when my, when my senator, uh, my last senator, when she was uh, termed out and I was looking and uh, interviewing for jobs, I was told by a uh, department, state department, that, uh, well, it had always been for years that with my master's degree that I needed more, right? I needed more years of experience. I needed uh, greater education opportunities. So I did that. I got the doctorate, right? Not, not not too many not too many places I can go above getting my doctorate. Did that. Then now I have the years of service. Been in the, uh, I've been in the, uh, the Capitol now for uh, ten years, and I was told, well, you have years, you have the education, but you don't have organizational experience that we're looking for. <laughs> Which is hilarious because we have to be organized. So the question is. How do we get the organizational experience from the department if we're not in the department? Right. Even the directors of departments when brought in by governor. So, 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 so just use Governor Greitens. He brought in all department heads from other states to be to run that particular department. And everybody wasn't fit for their particular position. So how does that work? So now you have these barriers that constantly get put in place for people like us, you know, that that there's always this loophole. And and, and uh, I asked him if I could have a transparent moment in the interview and I just kind of shot it off at him. Because I told him, I said, how can I, as a black man, move my career forward when one, the law, claim Missouri blocks me. The law blocks me. Two, you say get an education, I have that. You say you need years of experience, I have that. Now you come up with a whole nother reason. I said, at what point does the goalpost stop moving? At what point does it stop moving? And we begin to talk about um, uh, what it really takes to, to take another job, another position within state government. Because oftentimes there's never, there, there's, there's not room for us. Prime example, um, so gentlemen, I know, we all know. Uh, uh, recently just received a job, moving on, executive director, all the other kind of stuff. Exper uh, education, bachelor's degree, bachelor's degree. But works in government, same amount of years we have, but bachelor's degree. If we would have put in with higher degrees, we still wouldn't have got it. Nope. How does that work? It doesn't. So, so for us, there's not a lot of opportunity for state government. So it's like it's almost like once you get in, it's almost mandated that you stay where you are. You know, and then you have legislators who a lot of times uh they put barriers on you as well. You know, sometimes it's the legislators that look like us that put even more barriers on us. Mm -hmm. So to work in the office doing what we already know how to do. So, yeah, no, it's um, th that's one thing that I, I often thought about when I was just looking at the makeup, not of the people who were elected 
to the legislature, but that we're working in and around it. Um, because most people probably think, you know, you have your elected officials and you have your lobbyists, but there's, there's a whole nother, you know, civilization of humans that make that building run. And it's the staff, nonpartisan Mm -hmm. and partisan alike that, you know, move the levers and push the widgets and, and keep it, keep it moving. Um, and, I mean, unless I was in the room with the two of you, I was likely the only black person in the room. Um, and that's at any level of government, um, higher or or lower, unless for some, you know, unless we're talking about labor staff around the building. Right. Like that's that's that was the only exception. That's it. That's it. Yep. That's typically how it usually is. It's usually and it's usually white males at that. Mm hmm. If yeah. you're in a room with something, you're in a room with a, nothing but white males. How many? How many um, women are chiefs of staff in the in the Senate? Maybe about ten. Wow, that that's more than I would have guessed. To be honest yeah, it's, with it's, you, it's, yeah. That, that was just well, cool, look, okay. Now qualify what you think chief of staff because there's some that like do what we do, which you did. Mm-hmm. And then there's some that say that they're chief of staff, but really don't get into what we do. That was, that's a, such a great point because um, <laughs> I think working there was the first time that I realized in life uh, and in jobs, but titles don't mean squat. Like, I mean, you can be given a title and you're working harder than that title suggests, or you can be given a title and you're not doing half of what that title suggests. Correct. Um, and you're exactly right. There are some folks that are down there that have the title of chief of staff, yeah. um, but they're not no. utilized as such at all. They don't yeah. use it that way. You, you never see yeah. them out there on the floor. You never see them doing anything other than behind their desk and taking the information and just giving it back to the legislator, but not actually doing what we did. Yeah. Or what we do and what you did. So it's different. Talking about like what the what the job does, you mentioned like you mentioned the floor. Um the, the Senate floor, it's kind of like in a U shape. Uh, well, it's, yeah, essentially just in a horseshoe shape um, with an upper gallery. And uh, actually, I had Don on the show for the very first episode, and we we laughed about the day that um, they started singing Kumbaya on the floor. Uh, <laughs> very strange day. But uh, I, I asked Don this question, so I'll ask the both of you. Um, uh, and Jason, I guess we'll start with you. What is um, what's the, what's one of the stranger interactions that you've seen just in your job, uh, be that you're sitting on the floor, you're in a committee, you're in a closed door meeting and somebody said or did something that you, and it doesn't necessarily have to be controversial, but it was just one of those moments where you're like, there is no other place but this building that this would have happened. <laughs> Stranger moments. Hmm. I'm going to think about that one. Uh, the Kumbaya moment definitely was a strange moment. Uh, so I, I I do I can use this as, as an example uh, working with with my former senator uh, Jamila Nasheed she was up on the floor um, uh, going off on the issue I forgot what the issue was I think it was I think it was about minimum wage and uh, we had a prep for the filibuster you know the long haul and um, I didn't know that the protesters was coming up that particular day. And just so happened while she was talking, uh, they just they just they just started chanting right behind her. 
and uh, she said something, and then they're like they just gave, they just got up and just started chanting, and it like it went perfectly in sync with what she with what she had just said, and she turned around and she looked, and uh, uh, that's when uh, Peter Kendall was lieutenant governor. He was trying to uh, get order, but the protesters was going in. And uh, she came off the floor and she came to me. She was like, she was like, she, I guess she had heard they was coming. She was like, but uh, once they get, once they started chatting, she was like, shoot, it made her nervous. She didn't know who was behind her. <laughs> <laughs> because we didn't know, because she didn't know, because you know, in the Senate, you have to face the front. Mm-hmm. So while she's facing the dais, you know, you have these people that, that's, that's flooding in. So yeah, she didn't even know they were you. there yeah. at the time yet. So she thought they was coming a little bit later. If I remember too, um, Lieutenant Governor Kinder at the time, like he kind of split the gavel trying to try. That's how much, yeah. how you know loud they were. Their presence, yeah. they shut us down and to remove yep. them from the upper gallery. Yeah. Yep. Shut the Senate down. We we shut we shut down for a good little minute before. Yeah, we, yeah, we were. Yeah. Remember when they wouldn't even go in when they were walking the um, hallway singing. The clergy and them, and they were too scared to come out for their their offices, and so we didn't go in the session. Yeah, and that was that was that was doing uh that was for the Medicaid one. That was yep. for the Medicaid the Medicaid twenty three. Yep. Yep. That went to prison. I, I remember if we're thinking of the same you know same instance when they're going they were going around the building, you just. <laughs> You just heard her door after door, just kadoom, kadoom, kadoom. They just closed them all. Oh, yeah. And, I just stood out like, the hallway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All, all, right. all those who I'm did gonna, support uh, their positions, their doors were wide open. Uh-huh. Like, all right. You know, you know I remember uh, with the Medicaid group, when they came up doing uh, doing that protest in the hall, they went out in front of Ron Richards' office when he was pro tem, and uh, they, just, they just stood there praying. A whole bunch of preachers. They just stood right in front of his door, so he couldn't go nowhere. He couldn't get. He couldn't get in. He couldn't get out. He, just he didn't want to leave because he was scared of all the black people. I know. My head was like, oh, I can't go outside. There's Negroes out there. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh my goodness, uh, Lily. What what was something that you that has like kind of just been like only in this like portal of weirdness? So it was. Then Senator Davies and Senator Coleman, Maida Coleman, they were on the floor and we were up on um, an anti-choice bill. And so we've been going, they've been going at it for hours. It was, it was pretty late, but they caught everybody's attention because they were talking about abandonment, child abandonment, what they consider child abandonment, different issues. And Senator Davies proceeded to state that, well, isn't it child abandonment when a guy masturbates and just lets it go? He's like, that's just the possibility. <laughs> that wow. had everybody, you have the grandma looking Senator Days and Maida Coleman on the floor. <laughs> Talk about male. <laughs> who who made it look like, like your great aunt. Yes. Right, yeah, yeah. And at that point, everybody's <laughs> like, <"Err?" laughs> They said what? In the Senate, like, did they? Did did she just say that on the floor? And she (laughs) didn't face for one bit. She continued on in her little kept rolling. My goodness, 
Uh, y'all, wow. y'all couldn't see, but I had to I had to put my hand over my face so you could continue that story. I was I was dying. Sorry, kids, if you're listening to this. <laughs> it's okay. Every episode is explicit, just in case I curse. Um, but no, um, that's hilarious. <laughs> and well, oh, that's you know that's the other, that's the other thing about working in Jeff City is not necessarily that you could end up. Well, yeah, literally you can find yourself having any conversation that is legitimately germane to um, the discussion at hand. Um, And you kind of have to be, your your expertise has to be a mile wide and an inch deep um, by and large. I, I, you know, that's one thing that I got from my time down there was like, I don't necessarily have to know everything, but I should at least know where to look to get started. Correct. Um, What's the most challenging aspect of your job day in and day out? Uh, Lillian, you were talking about, you had to become a subject expert uh, really quickly so you could work on an issue, which every senator, you know, senator staff. And I will even say, even the senators are not experts themselves. No, <laughs> you know? no. And if you have, we become, we become, we become their experts. Yeah. Especially yeah. if you have people coming up saying, I need you to help me with this. It's like, well, what is it? You have no idea half the time. If you have certain things that are happening in your district, right? This is really going to mess us up for X, Y, and Z. It's like, okay, let's figure out what this is. So you're learning yeah. on the spot. You're basically at school every day. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out how to do your job effectively and educated so you don't look uneducated on the floor or you don't send your legislator out there looking a fool, which I refuse to do because you represent me in the, in the fact that when you're staying on the floor, what information you have is usually coming from me. So I can't have you looking mess on the floor. uh, Hold on. I will interrupt. I think you've been fortunate uh, with the exception of maybe one asterisk, um, but I think (laughs) the rest of us who have worked for at least one legislator can say that um, they don't always have uh they don't have the answers sway and if they don't have the answers and they sound crazy sometimes maybe mm-hmm. that's just on them i you know i i'm just saying maybe that's on them jason am i am i off am i off base here well you know and so now you're right and so you know what i, I try to do that. that's why i always kept my notepad with me anytime i was on the floor if if something came up i, I would write that note and i would send yep. that note constantly always have your notepad uh, with you yeah he was always in the uh, notes you know, you know what? Going back to going back to what we talked about about Stranger Things. This wasn't a strange thing, but it ended up being funny. Uh, which was uh, my former senator. She was up on the floor. She was going in about something, and I was in the office uh, working on something else. And um, somebody sent me a text, so I came into the Senate, and I was like, okay. Uh, and I and and you know I normally you know y'all y'all see me you know normally you know write something send it to her or whatnot, and I was like, okay. Um, something that happened, I was like, okay, I, I told everyone, I'm like, I'm, yeah, I'm going to send her a note, I'm going to let her know, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so. Wrote this note, took my pad out, you know, I, I just knew I was on something. Took it out, bam, wrote this note, gave it to the doorman. Doorman took it over to the senator. She was talking, she looked dead at me, in my face, front now, now imagine, I got the whole side, they waiting on her to read this note that I sent about, you know, a certain situation. She looks at me, takes the note and just rips it up. 
remember that. Wasn't it during a filibuster? And people, if I remember the situation, it was during a filibuster and people were hoping that she, that like she was going to just, you know, Mr. President, you know, I yield back my time, so on and so forth. Right. And and I I remember being on the side because when when she ripped it in half, everyone was like, all right, I guess we got at least another hour of this. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that. So she ripped it up and dropped the little pieces and uh, somebody came up to me and was like, so thanks for your note. And uh, and like the whole side just bust out laughing, right? <laughs> and so when she came off, when she finally came off the floor, she came and sat next to me and we were talking. And I told her, I said, uh, I like, you know, I like everybody over here was waiting on you to read that note. You know that, right? She was like, no. <laughs> She was like, she was like, she she had just got tired of me giving her too many notes that day. She was like, I didn't read it. <laughs> you hit your limit. I'm done. Hey, hey, Jason, how many times did she fire you? Oh, that is, I don't even know. That that that's that's an unlimited amount. Just like every week you've been you fired. You know, you know, I it used to make me real nervous when I had first started, and I used to you know get that all the time. But then after a while, at some point, it was just like, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. You know, it was just like, you know, okay. <laughs> okay, that's fine. all right. Yeah, we so got a meeting, is... meeting at 9 o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and here. I know you're going to text me if I'm not there. Right. Um, what, what is something that, you know, being this far into the legislative, uh, well, into your career with the legislature, what's something that you could have, that you, if you could go back and tell little you, younger you, beginning little fresh you who walked into that building and started working there, what is, what is a piece of game that you would kind of give yourself um, from your experience over these years? That 21 is going to really piss you off. <laughs> That's a lot. I've loved it all the way to this point. I really have, but I walked in and Don and Chris both were like, so you finally hit that point, huh? Took you long enough. <laughs> Took you long enough. Yeah. I mean, I hit a point listening to some of the things that were happening this year. It's like, there's going to be a point. Look, you're going to get to a point that you were going to be fed up and you, you just want to be done with it, but you can't, <laughs> you can't be because once you are, then who's going to be up there to care. Yeah. So, you got to fight the fight. You know, for me, I would say uh, own every room. You know, when That's you first you. come in, uh, especially as, as African-American, you you may have knowledge, but even now, it's almost you walk into a room and almost at a disadvantage, you know, because of our counterparts. And I would say whether you have the information or not, own every room. Walk in as if you are the man, because if not, sometimes you'll get treated as less than, as a black female, as a black male, and so we have to make sure that we are prepared to own the room. And don't be scared to speak up, because it took me a minute to finally just be like, wait, and then say what really needed to be said, or give the information that needed to be given if they didn't have it correctly. Don't be scared to be able to do that, to speak up, because that's your job. I didn't do that at the beginning. It took me a minute to get there. And like you said, own the room. I, I, people say they're scared of me. I don't, you know, I tell you how, you know, when you come to me, I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel or where I'm at on something. I'm not going to pussyfoot around it. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to tell you. 
and I'm going to give you what give you the answer that needs to be said. And if you don't like it, then I'm sorry. So that might come off. And I tell them too, they, you come off me like if I was a male, you wouldn't say that. So if you think I'm acting like a little bitch or something, it's like you wouldn't say that this is if it was a dude. So what's the difference? I'll be just I, not to be over complimentary and Jason, I'll let you, I'll let you, you go, but I'll just say that was actually, that energy is what actually got me to be comfortable coming to you and asking questions. Uh, it kind of reminded me of my sister of just like having an older sister. It's like, I don't care. Say something to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but, but having that also comes, you know, respect comes with that and uh, especially the hard work that you put in. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't, they wouldn't say that to you if you were a male at all. No, they wouldn't. You know, um, uh, this year, uh, I said something to a legislator, a uh, House member, that I probably wouldn't have said in years past. And uh, it was an issue. Uh, they had put an amendment on, on one of our bills in the House. And uh, bringing it back to the Senate would have caused much more damage. And so we worked with the House uh, to get the message from the Senate back to the House before it was read in so the House can correct it. And so we was going through that process to correct it. We were working with the rep to correct the issue or whatnot. Uh, and it was his oversight uh, on his amendment because he didn't read his language. And so um, that rep's bill came up in the Senate or whatnot, same night. And uh, my senator had an issue with it. And uh, we were trying to work through that issue. And so the rep came to me was like, you know, this is my bill. He was like, you know, I'm... Uh, you know, I just, you know, tried to help you guys on my side, on, uh, uh, you know, with your bill. Can you guys, you know, help work with me on mine? And I told him, I said, listen, what you did on your side, I said, that's your oversight. You messed up. You fixed your error. I said, don't come to me and ask me to, as, as if you did us a favor. And someone said, you ain't do me no favors. You messed up on your amendment. You didn't read your language. That's not my fault. He just looked, no. just looked at me. And I was like, so your bill is a totally separate issue because that wasn't for me. That was to, that was to, that was to save your neck. And he just looked, and just looked at me and I walked off. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, don't, don't come to me for sympathy when you messed up. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, we, I'm trying to undo your mistake. And so... Yeah, I'm like, nah, man, don't bring me that. Don't give me that. Yeah, no, it's, it happens. It happens so quickly because um, I've I mean, look, I'm just an observer at this point, but I've seen it happen so quickly, especially folks that get down to Jeff City. They, you know, God selected them um, and um, <laughs> they have they, they have all the knowledge, all the answers. Um, there's. What um, me and my counterpart, uh, um, Debbie, would say, it's the arrogance of the office sometimes um, that gets that gets in their head and how they how they treat folks. Um, and so good good on you, though, for just being like, hey, man, look, this is how it how it is. And this is how it goes. Do better next time, because uh, that's the only way you're going to learn. Uh, but I appreciate yeah. the thought about, um, you know, own the room because I was. I wouldn't do almost anything differently. I like kind of how things have played out. Um, and I, I enjoyed kind of going under the radar. I walked in and I was like, I'm here to learn. I'm here to observe. Um, and if I got something to say, I'll say it when we're not, you know, in the middle of everything. Cause I just got here. 
Um, cause I was the youngest person in the room almost every time. Um, were y'all the, the youngest folks in the room when you first got started? Yeah, I was. Oh, well, yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah. But now you have, you know, you have lobbyists now that really, I mean, it's become a family thing. So, you know, now mm-hmm. you have a lot of the lobbyists. That oh younger, gosh. Yes. Younger they they have two, three, four children working up under them now, you know, take it over the the reins and stuff, but on the on the same respect, I, I kind of appreciate it because if you have somebody that's been in the building, they know how things work and they're teaching them the proper way, other than some of these people that come into the building and think that they know what they're doing and they don't, and you, make, you want to curse them out sometimes. It's like, this is not how this works. This is not how I do things. So, so I yeah. appreciate it if they are teaching their 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 kids how to come in properly, then good on them. Now, I thought that was, at first I thought that was a unique thing. Oh, also, I thought that was a unique thing at first. And then I noticed just how many like family, thi- like it became a family business. And yep. I, look, I'm not one to sit here and, you know, tinfoil hat, but this is, you know, the road to oligarchies, uh, my friends, when folks, when only specific groups of people have the most influence and um, term limits have not helped us in that regard at all. But And they tried fixing that this year. I don't know if the bill actually got across the finish line. They're realizing that they need to take care of it. And they had the resolution that would extend so you can stay in the chambers for 16 years. So you could be 16 years in the Senate for 16 years. Oh, you half. mean the bill that, that, that I wrote? The bill that I wrote and we almost got passed? That? I you remember, remember that? that. Okay. I remember that so, bill. It was, it was a good it bill. Actually, there, was a one, there was one tweak that killed it, but um, it was a good bill whenever we wrote it. So. Well, Republican was, was handling it this year, and it was going because they're like, we need to fix this because we're noticing people don't know nothing up here. Mm-hmm. And you have, you're getting more people that are coming in and going strictly to the Senate. I mean, personally, I wouldn't want to go to the House either, but they're coming straight <laughs> into the Senate and have no clue to what they're doing. And None. like Igle, prime example, dude thinks he is the king of tax credits. Senator Igle from uh, St. Charles County? Yep. Yes. Yes. He annoys me. He overcooks my grits every week. And sitting there having to listen to him, oh my wow. He thinks that he has to stop or take make his opinion known on everything. And if he doesn't like how your tax thing is doing or going or whatnot, he has to make it to the weight. It's appropriate for him. Uh-huh. I mean, Oh, we had that same in Kansas city. We, there was a dream of having a um, UMKC extending or expanding it uh, conservatory um, mm-hmm. and having a new building. And so of course my Senator um, carried that bill being from Kansas city and I go killed it. Yeah. Because he didn't, he didn't like, it was like, dude, this is not in your district. Chill. <laughs> so this year, his crazy thing was he wanted to get, a, get rid of personal property taxes, but with not filling it in with any kind of funding mechanism to be able to cover what is covered under personal property taxes, which is basically your, your fire districts, your police departments, your school districts, your libraries, stuff like that, that are covered under personal property taxes. He didn't have another funding mechanism to fill those voids. So you basically are cutting those fundings for all that stuff. So my boss introduced an amendment that made him the test subject and just did his county only and it passed. Did it really? Yes. <laughs> Essentially it killed the bill because 
Yeah, yeah. But he wanted to go across the state. Now, now, now he was now he now Igor was fine with it. He was fine with it. No, because uh, when it actually got on, he was very upset, and he was trying to figure out how to get it off or to back it up. I'm sure his yeah. county definitely gave him a call. Like, oh, they Whoa. were getting. Oh, they definitely. were getting. Yeah, they were getting. Yeah. They were mad. It's like, dude, you wanted to do this for everybody. Well, in his first year, I remember when he was a freshman, it was my second to last year, I think. Um, he had a great idea because there was a conversation about roads and bridges to return all the state highways to the counties. And I think every county was like, you are trying to bankrupt us. There's no way we can afford that and and take over that maintenance. But that was like that was his great idea. Um, but I, I think that came from just not really knowing the funding mechanisms and how the counties uh, are able to to do that and the state does that so but to yeah. your point he he knows best but he, he came straight best. into the senate it without is. any real government experience so no. it's uh you had also mentioned though and um i had reached out to y'all to figure out some things about this session and uh, this session ended recently um and so welcome to the interim where you don't have a million people stopping by your office asking for things um and you can just work with constituents uh, mainly, but uh, the the Missouri legislature is a half is a part time legislature. So y'all come in in January, uh, constitutionally end in May. The interesting thing is that y'all's laws, if they get uh, signed by the governor, don't go into effect until August. And so, um, the end you know, of August. A, yeah, and so there's a few things that kind of were probably sucked up most of the energy. You. you I remember being in Jeff City, sit, and I was talking to Don, I think, and he was like, man, look at the table right there where uh, legislation, legislative research sat, and there's all those books. He goes, man, when I got here in, you know, 14, whatever, um, whenever <laughs> whenever I got here, there were half those amount of those books on the on the table that we had to bring up here. He goes, you know what those are? That's state statute. We have doubled state statute in the in the last 20 or so years. And he goes, for what? We have people here that don't want to pass, that want to limit government, but they pass more laws. He goes, this doesn't make exactly. any sense to me. It's like, I don't understand that either. Makes no sense. So when we're looking at when we're looking at this legislative session, um, there's a million different, well, any legislative session, there's a million different bills that creates more laws to add to the state statutes. I asked y'all earlier, what were some big ones that you personally worked on or, you know, you had an interest in as, as you worked ringside to uh, the legislative process here in Missouri? And Jason, I'm curious, um, one of them that I picked out that I, I would love to kind of talk about with y'all is the police reform bill. I think that bill was, uh, you had Senator uh, Brian Williams from St. Louis uh, file, I think it was Senate Bill 55, uh, that got rolled into another bill that eventually made it to the governor's desk. Uh, I think the final bill was at 56. I'll let you talk more about it, but talk, talk to me about that police reform bill, the context of the conversation, and what Kind of the, did you see as like, you know, again, ringside that unless you were there, you wouldn't have heard the conversation going on around this bill. And how did it have eventually? I'm personally surprised that it got that far. So so for so uh, so for me, um, we was kind of somewhat of like a um, behind the scenes backdoor person, if you will. So Senator Williams, his bill was initially Senate Bill 60 that they kind of laid out some reforms um, I believe the the bill he had during 
last interim as he prepared for this session <clears throat> actually had more reforms in it. But, you know, as you go through the process, you know, you you compromise, you you work things out to where you can get uh, something that can pass. So Senate Bill 60 was his bill. And then Senator Luthemeyer, the chair of judiciary, had a bill, Senate Bill 53. And so he wrote those two together, Senate Bill 50. So it was Senate Bill 53 and 60. That so I got all my numbers passing. wrong. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, you know what? It's, it's because you've been gone too long. That's right. Been gone too long. But uh, Senate Bill fifty three and sixty—that was the one that ultimately passed as the uh, police reform bill. And so, for me, my interest in the bill was that uh, my office, Senator Carla May, we ended up having uh, Senate Bill five fifty one, which started, um, which actually came about because of a discussion on the floor between her and Senator Igo uh, on his bill, Senate Bill twenty six. Um, so, our, so, so back to, I know we got all these numbers, but, uh, Senate Bill 551 that Senator May, uh, sponsored creates the, uh, it was called a critical incident management program. So this program would be a program, a mental health program, essentially for police officers. Uh, it's a mental health check for police officers. Um, not necessarily saying you have to go see a therapist, anything like that, but there is a list of parameters, uh, of what satisfies the mental health check, right? Say for instance, if you're a captain or you're a chief, they want to, you know, you can do one educational class for the whole department. That satisfies the mental health check. So there are certain parameters we have put in it. Uh, we worked with all the law enforcement agencies to make sure everybody was on board with it um, and everything like that. So um, we added that to, to the uh, police reform bill to have this mental health check for police officers because we all know they, they, they see all kinds of stuff on the streets, all kinds of traumas, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of officers, my father was a police officer. You don't want to carry that kind of stuff home. And so you have to have a way, you know, to, to kind of release you from some of that stuff. And so, uh, so we had that into the bill. And also we had a funding mechanism to pay for it. Uh, a new mechanism called the 988 Public Safety Fund. And so that's a fund that we uh, appropriated uh, $500,000 to that would allow uh, police departments to be able to utilize, to pay for the classes, to be able to pay for whatever uh, those certain metrics in the bill was that they want to use, right? It was peer-to-peer uh, -peer sessions, counseling, uh, educational requirements. It was a list of things we had put in there that this money can be used to help the police departments do that for their officers. And then also uh, corporations can pay into it. So if, if any corporation wanted to give to that fund, they can actually, they can essentially give money to that fund to help police officers pay for their mental health checks. So um, that was, those were some of the parameters we put in it. We also uh, put an amendment on the uh, use of force amendment for the um, the AG report that uh, certain metrics will be used, uh, will be gathered uh, for use of force into the uh, report that goes to, that, uh, that goes to the AG or comes from the AG. And so, uh, so we also- Where does that put report that go? The, is that just a general, general public release or is anything done with it? Um, I believe it comes to the legislature uh, once it's complete. And then it's, um, it's, it should be a public document. I think that that um, you can, so I, in, my, in my, I guess in the perfect world, right, you would then use that information to, uh, I would say, come back the next session with laws that would be, or bills to be able to use that information, right, to, to make things even better 
than what it was once you see what the data shows for the report. And so, uh, so those were three pieces that we put into uh, the, the, the police reform uh, bill so that way we could have some other measures to actually help police officers when it came to that issue dealing with trauma and mental health. I love that. So I'm just going to assume, um, and in my assuming, ask a question that your just life perspective of having a parent as a police officer impacted your perspective on this work at a time, you know, after we're about a year out from the justice, uh, social justice summer, if you will. Um, how did that perspective of having um, a parent as a police officer, um, how did how that impact your work? And I would imagine in a positive way when you're in a room um, full of folks, excuse me, when you're in a room full of folks who maybe assume that you, um, because of the way you look and, you know, being a black male, have a problem with police. How how did you navigate that with that life perspective? You know, it it seems as if that with the the whole uh, movement of defunding the police, it seems that if you're black, that you automatically agree with defunding the police, right? Or if you're a Democrat, you automatically agree with defunding the police. And uh, really that messaging, uh, I don't mind the message, but I believe that how it was being portrayed uh, from the other side was not really what defunding the police actually meant. Which we, that was but, our uh, thought, I think, for how we said defunding the police. We should have named it something different. That's, that's, that's probably true too. Because really what it is, is not a defunding, but it's really a reallocation of resources to, you know, other areas that would also be able to help. But, um, but for me, and that's one thing I, I, I had to tell law enforcement officers uh, in the various law enforcement associations, like, listen, you know, we, first off, we need police officers, right? Uh, even scripture tell us that, you know, the law is for the lawless. So we need, we need uh, police officers. You need those things. But uh, I had to tell them, you know, my father was law enforcement. So for me, uh, law enforcement holds a, a special place, if you will. Uh, I, I at one point wanted to be law enforcement. Um, and so uh, it's not the fact that I'm against what they do. We need to have better interactions and in how things happen, right? Uh, I was talking to my brother and a few other people. He's a mental health counselor. And we were talking and uh, you don't hear people say, right? You hear people say F the police, right? You don't hear, you don't hear people say F the firefighters. Right. And so, you know, because when there's a fire, you want them to come and do their job. Right. When there's a fire, if I'm telling you there's a fire there, don't come in or don't come and knock me over and spray me with water. Put the fire out. Right. And so essentially same thing with police officers. You know, uh, uh, we need officers to a point if we're the ones that's calling. Right. Don't come and arrest the people that's calling. Don't come and shoot the people that's calling you. Find out what situation is handle the situation that's going on. And so uh, for me, uh, I, I somewhat hold a special place for law enforcement. Like I said, I, 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 that was also one of my career paths was for law enforcement. Um, and so I try to use that in my conversations and dealings with them that like, listen, I'm pro law enforcement, but here's, here's what our community is saying. How can we take this message and find a way to make things better, make law enforcement better in some aspect? 
Yeah, I think what has kind of grown from that conversation, um, I think people are landing on, Democrats are safely landing on, is, is the word accountability for, from all that conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Lillian, your senator um, is, is, a, is a white union um, senator from St. Louis. Did you have any, uh, as a Black woman, did you have any interesting conversations, not necessarily with him, but just like just really insightful conversations that helped him do his job better? As- just in general, or um, regarding regarding you know police reform, and did he, did he ask any questions? Well, I, and like Jason's dad, my dad was a cop too, and so which means that I support law enforcement too, and he understood that he was the only Democrat that voted for the criminal bill. Everybody else voted against it, and he's like, because there was some good pieces in there that he supported, and he's like, they could have changed some other things, but he voted for it, which means that he probably is going to get cracked for that too, because he's a Democrat that voted for the bill. So he, he already had his own mind made up and which was perfectly good. He knew how he felt on the issue that there there does need to be change. And he felt that this was a mechanism that was moving us forward with that. So other than the how, how, how did you show up with in those conversations, not necessarily just with him, because there's conversations that are had with lobbyists, other um, staff members um, with your perspective of being a child of a law enforcement officer? Well, I, I didn't agree with um, the residency, residency requirement doing away with that, because how are you supposed to serve and protect your community if you don't live in it and don't know it? And two, they need more officers that look like the communities that they are serving and protecting as well, which they are working towards that now with the new academy that's starting at Lincoln University. They have started the, the next police academy, which is focused on bringing in more minorities into that particular field. They need that. Um, my dad, would he was a, a chip, if you will. He rode a motorcycle he was a motorcycle cop. And so he would bring that home. And so the kids in the neighborhood knew that officer Brooks lived right there. And he'd turn on his sirens every now and again, and he'll park the bike inside of the garage. He lived in the community that he served and people knew who he was and where he was. And so I do like Jason have respect for officers. My brother-in-law is a corrections officer currently today in one of the high um, facilities in the state of California. And he puts his life at risk all the time because he's still, he's in the one that Marilyn Manson was in type facility. What, what some would assume the worst of the worst. There you go. Um, so our, our house supports law enforcement because that's what our family, that's my family. Those are our family members. And I think that my boss understood that too. And if I had an opinion, he respected that too, but I think we were pretty much on the same page when it came to it all. To piggyback off with Jason, the, the legislation, this is the first uh, police reform bill passed since Michael Brown. Even after the Ferguson report came out, it listing all the things that needed to be done, none of it was done. This mm-hmm. is the first bill passed ever dealing with any of the recommendations from that commission report that came out. How long ago was that? It took us that long to finally do something in the state of Missouri. Six years? Going forward. See, six years since Michael Brown. So it took us that long to get 
to, to this point of actually getting something done. And I think that's way too long. I mean, cause it took Senator Brown's, no, excuse me, Senator um, Williams bill was doing away with chokeholds and she's, and he, and Senator May did the uh, mental health aspect of it. We are long ways from doing what else needed to be done. And like I said, I don't think doing away with the residency requirement is going to help us. I think you have to be able to work in the community. So if you if you see that Jason is downstairs outside where he shouldn't be outside, he needs to be in the house because he needs to be looked after. And you're driving in the neighborhood like, oh, wait a minute, I know what house he's supposed to be in. You could help that person before something else happens because you know your neighborhood or you're looking at Mrs. Jones's um house and you're saying something doesn't look right because that's not how Mrs. Jones house usually looks. Why is it, what's going on over there? Know your neighborhood, know your community, know the people. So they are okay with coming up to you if they need to. And I, and that's not good. That's not what's going to happen with what they've done this year, especially. You know, and, and, and with the, and with the residency thing, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest pieces we were against as well, because, um, Right. And St. Louis uh, last year during special session, I mean, they, they took St. Louis residency completely away. But yeah. with Kansas City, they made it to where uh, you got to be uh, at least 30, 30 miles, I believe, out. Yeah, the radius. 30 minutes yeah. out. Um, and, but the issue with that is if, if most violent crimes only happens within a few minutes, there's no way, no way you're going to be able to get there to stop that crime. It's impossible. So, you know, and I, and I understand the, the aspect of moving people out because of, you know, issues to police officers, families and things like that. But if you're doing your job right, you don't have to worry about threats to your family. Right. Well, uh, I, I think you're, you're protecting your. I think further to your point, you're protecting. Um, and that's one thing I've never understood about the conversation of changing um, what change the accountability or strengthen the accountability is like if we hold you accountable you are protecting your people too mm-hmm. like it's not it's not a we're not coming out we're trying to as much as this is like yes this is uh, some of these um calls for change are citizen driven not only do they protect the citizens but they protect the um the department as well um to make it better um for, you know to make it work like you said that that community piece is so important um mm-hmm. and i to switch gears uh, Lillian, you had mentioned another thing that was huge and is going to continue to be huge in in conversation moving forward uh medicaid expansion uh and yeah. if you if you go back um, we had um, in the governor's budget for this year, back in January, he had proposed uh, an estimated total, or yeah, an estimated total cost of expansion of one point nine billion dollars, with one hundred and thirty million of that coming from state revenue, general revenue, and then the remaining one point six five billion dollars coming from the federal treasury. Um, yep. And, and that's, you know, so so that was how that was going to get paid for. Um, mind you that um, I'm just going to kind of set the scene for you and let, and let you go. This was um, brought up after you had mentioned the legislature might not be focusing on things that, you know, can get done or rather they're not. Uh, they are so incremental in their changes. The citizens 
put forth a proposal to expand Medicaid after the uh, America, or excuse me, the Affordable Cares Act uh, made that a possibility. Several states um, uh, around us have expanded Medicaid, and Missouri did not do that legislatively. The people decided to do that, um, uh-huh. but they needed the action of the legislature um, to fully fund this expansion that would cover 275,000 eligible uh, people. Um, so we see a lawsuit uh, against the state. What Sorry, happened? What what happened? Because look, I mean, the base a basic person. I mean, to be eligible for this, for those that don't know, you have to be 138 percent of the federal poverty guideline. That's you're only making seventeen thousand dollars, just over seventeen thousand dollars. And for yep. a family of four, you are yep. working sixty eight hours a week on minimum wage yep. to qualify for this. That's a lot of people. That's over a quarter of a million people um, that are not going to be covered by this because the legislature decided not to fund Medicaid. And they didn't fund it because they were saying that you can't, you can't legislate funding through the constitution, which that's not what was done. What was done was they expanded the qualified people for Medicaid. So the catchment area of who can get it, that's what we did. We, we expanded who could get it. We already fund Medicaid. So now we just need to fund it to the point that it covers all these new people. We didn't have to. We didn't legislate. We didn't legislate in the Constitution a funding mechanism because we didn't have to. We were just saying we're going to do more people. That's where the argument is. We had the money. It wouldn't cost the state very much, respectively. And then we would be saving. There was a savings as we went forward. But this would basically would have been covered under the CARES Act to pay for health care for your children, your disabled individuals, single parents, your elderly. It was helping, helping people that need it. But it's easy for somebody to say that they don't want to do it or to fight it when they're already on subsidized state health like we are. We have health care at a reasonable cost, and yet we can't help others, which is unfathomable in my opinion, especially when it wasn't going to cost us that much to do it in the first place. And was, if you look at that number, because it's covering 270 or 270,000 individuals back when Blunt was in office, he cut Medicaid about by that many individuals off the rolls and they were never put back on. We're basically putting people back on that were cut by another administration we're able to finally give them back the health care that they weren't allowed under somebody three governors ago. I'm just saying it's, it's I'm sorry. easy. I, I was laughing at uh, J- Jason. He's, he's battling a fly. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I thought I, I thought I had put my, I thought I, I muted myself, but I thought I had put my video, my, uh, my picture back up, my avatar. And I, I realized I didn't. And I saw, uh, I saw Sweet like, I, I just saw song. a shoe and just a, a <laughs> swift motion. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Sorry, Lillian. But yeah, I know you're exactly right. It, it's it's kind of just like, hey, we're going to go back to a previous status quo, covering more people that are in need. I talked about how low the bar is to be to qualify. And the sad thing is that that's not an that's not just an estimation. Um, that's an estimation based that's off of the people numbers. that that we know. Currently, needed. yeah, that qualified. They needed. Yeah. You know, you know what was crazy about it? Uh, because 
since it goes through the budget uh, and, and Senator Mason's on the budget, I was in the room when the whole vote happened, when everything, when they all started, when the discussion started in the budget process. And since the House didn't add it into their budget, uh, it was actually a Republican who was going to put the money in. Not a Democrat, it was a Republican who um, who had the amendment to add the money for Medicaid expansion back into the Senate's version. Uh-huh. Back yeah. into Senate's version of the budget. And um, when we came back in that night, we came in uh, upon adjournment uh, for recess for the budget. So we came back in. And uh, instead of dealing with, instead of going through like we normally did, that was the first thing we took care of was Medicaid expansion for both bills before we went back to appropriate the other lines. And so uh, when he offered the amendment, it wasn't to fully fund it. It was actually a partial fund uh, Medicaid expansion uh, amendment that he had. So it wasn't the full amount, but it was it was a partial amount. And uh, every senator kind of went through their spiel about how they felt about it and kind of where they stood. Um, and actually, when the, when listening to everybody uh, talk, we actually thought we had two people, two or three people that might have flipped, might have flipped the vote. And so um, when it came down to the vote, it ended up being seven to seven. It's, uh, we expanded the appropriations committee uh, a year or two ago, and now it's 14 people on appropriations. So it, it, the vote was tied, it was seven to seven. And you know, in committee, anytime there's a tie like that, it automatically uh, uh, fails. And so um, so uh, uh, it came down, it was uh, the four Democrats plus three Republicans who voted for it. And then the other seven Republicans voted against it. And then what's so funny was, the, this, it blows my mind, it's just, it was just so funny to me. Senator May said, um, she said, well, she's like, now we just gonna have a lawsuit. And the courts are going to tell us how to fund it. And it was just something, she wasn't saying it out loud to everybody. It was just something she was saying to us in the, it was a close, close proximity. One of the senators who voted against it was sitting right next to it was like, yep, that you show right. That's what's going to happen. And I sat there and I was like, so if you know that, and the whole, one of the, one of the whole big arguments was the courts can't tell the legislator what to do. It's better for us to do it. If you know that, why you just didn't vote for it? So we, so we would at least have a conferenceable position that we could have took to conference and had an even further discussion about. And she got up crying and walked out the door. And it's like, why go through all that when you could have just said yes? Right. So that just that blew my mind that night. And so that's uh, one thing I I don't remember what the what the issue was, but I do remember there was an issue that was similar in this in the sense of we have to do this, or rather we should do this. It's not like a oh this is a moral right, but it was like one of those like hey probably the state needs to do this, and people were saying nope 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 the courts can't tell us what to do. But they knew that the courts was, I mean, that's always, and I think that's what people forget, or maybe that they they just uh, rely on. And that actually, yes, they do forget that people rely on. And since, it, well, if the legislature does something, we're just going to take it to the courts and give the courts its power, you know, the, they'll tell us what to do, to do. right? And folks yeah. don't like the the idea of activist judges. I'm not going to go down that road, but if, but the, the reason why people don't like that and the reason I think, Jason, to your point, which is if you know this is going to go somewhere where they're probably going to tell you what to do anyways, why don't you do it the way that you want to in the first place and do your job? Yeah. 
Um, that's where I think that's where they are passing the buck, if you will, coming from Missouri. You know, the buck's got to stop there. And we as elect, as uh, as the populace, people who are elected, we have to care about the fact that they're going down there and just saying, well, this is hard, so I don't want to do it. Uh, so we'll have somebody else choose. A great example in Kansas City in the Jackson County area, real quick, uh, we're named after Andrew Jackson. And some, some folks wanted to remove the statues from the courthouse. And instead of just making the decision, the legislature voted it would have been a vote of the legislature to remove it. They voted to let the people vote. Just hard. <laughs> and that costs money. Um, you know, elections cost yeah. money. Lawsuits cost the state more money. Yeah. And it's just a really inefficient way to get your government. Also, uh, statewide petitions cost a lot of money, money. Um, to, to get them on the ballot. And so it's it's costing the state and individual people more money whenever the elected officials aren't, you know, well, just making a decision. And like you said, Jason, if you're going to have to do it, why not do it the way that you want it? Now, see what I think is going to happen now. We go to court over this because constitutionally they're mandated to do to to accept these people. Now they're not accepting them come July 1st. We are mandated by Constitution to fund education fully. We don't fully fund the foundation formula. So they're setting the president now that we can go after you guys to fund something. You didn't fund Medicaid when you're supposed to because we put it in the constitution. Now we're going to come after you to fund education because it's there saying that you have to fund this 100% and you're not doing it. It's just opens the door for people to come in to come at the, the state for not funding things 100% when they're supposed to. Just do it. Just yeah. do it. And think- and, and don't cherry pick what part of the Constitution that you were going to like and dislike. This is in the Constitution. It's more parts besides the, it's more parts besides the Second Amendment. There um, you go. Which apparently is very important, which is a something that we focused on a lot and took up time that last, what, Thursday of session to pass something to say that the state, the government or the federal government's laws don't supersede state government, which that's not how that works state government doesn't supersede federal and yet this bill says that we the federal government can't dictate what we do with guns and we can't have the federal government coming in and prosecuting people on federal charges when it comes to guns and whatnot it's like that's not how this works it's not how it works that was my perception when i got there you can't even work with the federal government on those laws without getting fined fifty thousand dollars like that's <laughs> not how this and losing your, and and losing your job. So yeah. actually, you allowing you allowing your criminals to walk free by gun crime than anything else because how can you track the weapon? Right. Yeah. It, it it just seemed like the help of the federal. Government. It just seemed like they that the legislature has a tendency to jump onto things that or hold on to things that they don't truly move the needle in any direction. They just they they just they really don't. Um, but it is for purpose of um, elections and whatever. Um, but that's not truly what makes people's lives better. But the people who um, are there, I appreciate the both of you. Um, 
I know that it's your job. You get paid for it. You do enjoy it. Otherwise, you wouldn't show up for it on even the worst days. And I know that at the end of session, those are the worst days because um, everyone's trying to get something done and, ev- and everyone's hair is on fire and someone's always around a bush trying to get you. Uh, but uh, I appreciate people like you, the both of you that are there that are that like long term knowledge um, on like how stuff really go uh, should go. You know, the the culture of the Senate has changed over the years. I saw it change just in those three and a half years that I was there. Um, so I can only imagine the change that you have seen. Um, and, you know, that's hopefully, hopefully we can get some good people down there to back y'all up. Um, and, you know, that's something that I would love to see is, is to get some good quality people down there to, to back y'all up, not just on the staff level, but that you have to work with some smart people. It'd be it'd be great to have some folks that understand how um, that it's more than just the uh, I'm just a bill, whatever. But um, I will say um Again, thank you both. I'm going to end this with a lighter note, kind of just land this whole episode just on a lighter note. I asked y'all to pick a question um, or pick a number, which coincides with the question. Um, so, Jason, we will start with you. You chose 2,500. Your question, sir, is what superstition are you most afraid of um, that will give you bad luck for real, for real? <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> it's not just a little something that you always do. That I always that I always do. You, you gotta do um, it. So, well, it's not necessarily a superstition. My wife just says OCD, but I always gotta check a door multiple times whenever I lock it. I don't know why. It's just it's something I have to do. I don't know. That's an OCD tendency. <laughs> <laughs> Like you can't you have got more to. than two sets of hands in your head, or don't sweep somebody's feet with the broom, or split a pole. <laughs> well, I assume he wouldn't have any like that, but <laughs> but you you got to check that door like five. How many times do you check it, Jason? Three. Uh, maybe maybe three. Okay. Three four, okay. It's not you. It's not just a one two. It's like one two three no. at at least. Okay. Yeah. My wife, she always she always gets something about that. <laughs> well, see, uh, hey, that is security, right? That at least she knows that you are you're checking the door when she hears that. That's all I'm saying. It's assurance. It's really assurance. It is. It is. But you know what? But you know what? There, there was a case. There was a case one time we didn't double check, and it was unlocked. I'm like, see, I told you. See, that's yeah. why you got to check. Gotta you got to check. check. You got to do it. Uh, Lillian, question 10. What is the quality you most admire in a person? Honesty. I want to be able to know you're honest as well. That's first and foremost. Whenever they're speaking the truth, you appreciate it? I appreciate it. I really do. I mean, I don't want to be, I want to know who you are. If I know that your truth about you, then I know who I'm dealing with. It's like it's a devil, you know. Show your cards. I want to know you're honest. Be honest about who you are. Don't be don't be false and fake. I don't have time for that. I want somebody to be honest. That's the quality I look for in a person. I appreciate that answer. 
Uh, and I'll be honest with with y'all. This has been a lot of fun outside of recording for the for the podcast. Um, this has been a lot of fun just just checking in with y'all and uh, just talking. You act all grown and can't come talk to people, can't call people, can't come visit people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did you finally get in trouble? I, that's exactly <laughs> where I was trying to get away from, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, well, I'm going to close this and, uh, say my thanks again to, um, chief of staff Lillian Williams and, uh, chief of staff, PhD, Reverend Dr. Jason Gross. Thank you all for joining ZSP today. Uh, I'm going to let these two go, but y'all know what's next, but I digress. Major thanks to Lillian and Jason. You know, um, it's great when you have incredible coworkers. Uh, it's hard to leave them, um, but it's it's even better when you have incredible coworkers that go on to truly become friends. And uh, I had a, I just was really fortunate to learn from them while I was down there. I still learn from them, and um, you know, somebody these are folks I know I can call on. So I really appreciate it. Um, and actually for folks I can call on, you know, I called on them. I, I wanted to get this episode and it was just a matter of finding the right day. It wasn't a matter of, um, you know, let me try to convince you. So it was really great to have them. When I was preparing for the episode, I asked what were a few things that they had worked on um, or maybe cared about from this past legislative session that just ended a few weeks ago here in Missouri. And, um, you know, they sent me a list, but one thing that came up was just like the how there was blatant racism that made itself known on the Senate floor. Now, I'll just say for my short time, I, I you hear dog whistles. I mean, race, racist language ideologies um, find themselves in, in hearing rooms and, and eventually in the state statutes themselves. Um, but they sent me a clip from Senator Mike Moon, um, and he was actually asking a question of Kansas City's Senator Greg Razor, who was offering an amendment um, that would offer some protection for, um, any, you know, against folks discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation, and gender identity. And um, Mike Moon, well, Mike Moon had some questions and maybe had a suggestion. Listen. My thoughts, though, go back to uh, the 1930s, and I don't know if you were in the chamber during that time when I was talking about the Mexicans in Texas. Do you, do you recall that, that story? Earlier this year? It was just last week, I believe, maybe the week before, but I'll, I'll tell you okay. since it doesn't sound like I always like a good uh, story from the senator from Lawrence. But it, it has to do with public accommodation. And, and what it is essentially is back in, I think it was 1935, there were, I call them redneck Texans. They put uh, some signs on their businesses that stated, no Mexicans or dogs allowed. 
And, of course, you can understand what they thought of Mexicans. And so did the Mexicans appeal to the government and say, you've got to do something about this? No, what they did, though, was they went to their, uh, their neighbors and friends, and because they weren't served in the stores, whether they were restaurants or other establishments, I, I don't recall exactly. However, they started businesses of their own to the point where about 80 years later now, uh, they have one of the, the largest, and probably more than that, but at least one of the largest multinational businesses there is, uh, Goya Foods. You may be familiar with Goya Foods. And, um, and so the point is, they took matters into their own hands, not violent or anything like that. Uh, they, I guess they thought the Texans had the right to uh, not serve them if that's what they wished. But instead of uh, just putting their tails between their legs like the dogs that were not served either, uh, they started their own businesses. Uh, not too long later, uh, there were some Asians in San Francisco, and uh, they were treated by white people the same way. And so instead, they didn't appeal to the government. They got together with their own people group. They started their own businesses. They started their own financial institutions. And uh, they became very successful until during the war. You remember the internment camps. And so because they looked like the enemy, they were put in internment camps, and that kind of put a quash on their, their productivity. Now, some are going to probably bristle when I say this, but in the 1960s when the young men went to the lunch counter, there's a difference in what happened. They didn't go down to the corner and say there's an empty lot and let's start our own chicken and chitlins business. They appealed to the government, and now that's why we have the Civil Rights Act today. And, and I just wonder what this world would be like if these young men had, had not have appealed to the government but gotten together with other like-minded folks and said, hey, let's see what we can make out of this. I believe we'd have a different world today, but we don't. And so in what you're, you're doing here, I, I get it, I think. Maybe I don't fully understand it the way you, you do because I haven't lived through that. But I would encourage you, instead of appealing to the government, get together with those who believe the same as you do and start your own companies. Instead of bringing suit against the Jack Phillips and the, um, I think her name is Marion L. Stutzman and the other, the, kid, the cupcake bakers and all the photographers and the pastors who want to only give, do weddings for certain people, get together with those and, and make a go at it. I would imagine that there's probably enough who believe the same way as you do that they would be, you'd be successful. So, so what I'm encouraging you to do is to withdraw this amendment and get together, make a go at it without having the government to say, okay, here's going to be a protection. Because you look at all these other protections in there, it's like, good grief, we've got race, color, religion, national origin, sex, and now we're going to add something else to it. When will it end? And, and again, I'm not trying to make light of what you're doing. Because I know that you are, uh, have a passion about it, but um, I just think that the consequences could be better and different. I think you'd be more successful if you went outside the government's protection. Yeah. Yeah, that's Senator Mike Moon from Ashgrove, Missouri. Um, And he, he, would it surprise you that he had a chicken incident? 
I'll leave it at that. Google Mike Moon chicken. It'll pop up. Um, But I've never steered you wrong. But what is incredible about just how transparent his language is, is that that is what folks truly, truly believe. And, um, you know, Senator Carla May, um, who Jason works for later in the clip, goes on to tell him about block Black Wall Street. Um, Senator Moon was bringing up all these examples, problematic as they absolutely were. Um, but Senator Carla May decided to uh, educate him on something that happened 100 years ago, which was Black Wall Street and um, the Tulsa race massacre. They called it Black Wall Street because just like the senator suggested, made their own community thriving with business. They were so damn successful that on May 31st and June 1st, 1921, there was a race massacre uh, when a mob of white residents, many of them deputized and given weapons by city officials, attacked black residents and businesses of the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, I did not learn about this until after I graduated from college, which was in 2015. And the more I learn about this, the more horrendous this incident truly was. It was more than just, oh, okay. so they they called it a race riot, by the way, to change the the narrative. But really, it truly was a massacre. Um, Some accounts recall airplanes dropping bombs down on their buildings. And there are pictures, if you Google um, Black Wall Street, of whole communities burning. You can see it. And um, just rapid fire on on residents. A hundred plus year old survivor, Leslie Benningfield Randall, recalled that they tore it all down. Now, she was just seven when this happened. Um, It is amazing just that she and there's actually going to be a report uh, done by CBS uh, with Miss Benningfield Randall, um, but she just recounts what she remembers even as an impressionable seven-year-old. And speaking of history that I didn't learn until I was, well, an adult, um, there is the 1619 Project. And I I really encourage folks to check it out. You probably heard about it. It's uh, probably controversial for some. don't really know why it's called history, my friends. But the 1619 Project is a long-form journalism project developed by uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones for the New York Times. And I was actually really excited whenever this was announced that it was coming out. And because, I, like I said, I haven't had that education. This is something that I've had to go out and seek out myself. I was excited about this project because um, it was coming out. It was going to be chock full of history that I was hungry for. And um, there were quotes saying that this project aimed to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the United States national narrative. And um, it was also published uh, in August of 2019 for a very specific reason. Um, That was also the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in the English colony of Virginia. And, um, you know, it's 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 incredible. 400 years later, and there are still barriers to learning the true history, the transparent history 
of the beginnings of this country and not just the beginnings, but how this country really took shape over those formative years. Um, and I, like I said, I was just so excited to get this, but I didn't realize that there would be controversy over this. A lot of these articles, in, in fact, are based off of primary sources. And so I was a little surprised. No, I was not surprised. I was disappointed when I found out that the critical race theory um, had made its way to the Missouri House legislature to be debated on, in which there was a leg- there was legislation that would essentially ban the 1619 project from being taught in schools. Think about that. The history of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the center of the United States national narrative, that story would be banned from being taught in the state of Missouri. Sounds ridiculous, right? So let's just back up a second. What is critical race theory? Well, it's an academic movement among uh, civil rights uh, scholars and activists in the U.S. uh, that seek to re-examine the laws and um, how they and examine how they intersect with issues of race and also challenge mainstream approaches to uh, racial justice. And really, this is all kind of birthed out of uh, criminal justice, but has really expanded broader. And so now we're reexamining the world around us with the understanding that race this construct, there is no biological um, founding of race, but this construct, the effects of it on how we have built our society and how we have built uh, the, the government and the, the functions in which we enable folks to be a part of this society. According to Senator Moon, maybe you should just go create your own little sub-society if you can't get what you need. But anyway, if this sounds crazy, that... The state of Missouri did not want to teach the story of slavery and the contributions of enslaved uh, Americans. Um, Missouri is not alone. Governors in Idaho and Oklahoma have already signed measures um, that would forbid this teaching. And uh, and that's in this school year. And uh, when we're looking at our neighbor just to the south here, Arkansas, their governor let a similar bill pass without signing the bill. He didn't veto it either. Proposals like this have also shown up in Iowa and Tennessee, where they actually are waiting for action of their governors. But in Arizona, Louisiana, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and a few others, um, they've included Missouri. They've kind of waded into this conversation with any efforts um, stalling, failing for a, ver- for a variety of reasons. So Missouri's not alone in this effort, right? Uh, they're, they're trying to say, hey, we can't teach this history. What are you talking about? This is brainwashing. This isn't America. America did not fight the war over slavery? No, no, no. The Civil War was fought over rights. This is just a reaction to the social justice summer. Um, But this isn't the first time that we've kind of seen this reaction, right? Like we saw this reaction after a lot of the conversation of Confederate soldiers took place around this country. We saw this action whenever they said, hey, don't take down our statues, don't rename our streets, 
don't remove the statue of a president who committed genocide yet had never stepped foot in your area. No, no, no. That is history. And you cannot rewrite or delete history. Well, I agree with you. And it's actually interesting because the Southern Poverty Law Center found that uh, when they counted in 2019, that there were nearly 2000 Confederate monuments, place names and other symbols in public spaces across America. You know, following the social justice summer in 2020, just last year, more than 160 of those symbols have been removed or renamed. Let's do that math. That's just 12.5% of all existing Confederate symbols in this country being removed or renamed. A majority of these symbols in the first place, they, they appeared between the late 19, or 1890s and up to the 1920s. Uh, there was a second wave that was a smaller peak in the 1950s to 1960s. Hmm, these are some interesting timelines, no? According to Leisha Brooks of the Southern Poverty Law Center, placing these memorials on courthouse property, especially in the 1950s and 60s, were meant to remind black Americans of the struggle and subjugation they would face in their fight for civil rights and equal protection under the law. This is this is a blatant reminder. Of, no, 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 no. You think you got that, but we still run this. You are still inferior. And uh, I would really encourage you to actually go to the um, to 538. If you're a statistics and numbers nerd, it's a wonderful place to go for politics and sports alike uh, and get some, some in-depth knowledge, uh, some numbers knowledge. But in their article, they actually show in a graph how many of these when these dedications took place and you see that there was an increase in schools named after confederate leaders following brown v board uh the little rock nine and a big increase following the passage of the civil rights act this is just cracking the the top and again i go back to 12.5 percent of these confederate symbolism, monuments, what have you, have been removed. And we are losing our minds and putting in state statutes that we can't um, put the true history, actual history, primary documents, sources. It's all there. Check the receipts. We can't put that in our schools. You know, it's funny. I'll even go a step further and mention that a group of Republican attorneys from 20 states, including Missouri's Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who is running for U.S. Senate, sent a letter to the Biden administration chastising federal officials for using two grant programs as a, quote, thinly veiled attempt at bringing into our state's classrooms the deeply flawed and controversial teaching of critical race theory and the 19 in the 1619 project end quote deeply flawed controversial remember i mentioned primary sources here's one the cornerstone speech of 1869 this was given extemporaneously by all accounts by alexander stevens if you don't know that name, I don't blame you. 
he was the Confederate vice president. And he would say that, quote, our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas as those of slavery foes. Its foundations are laid. Its cornerstones rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. That slavery, the subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. End quote. And adding that the Confederacy was founded on, quote, the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. End quote. 12.5% Confederate monuments have been removed in this country. And their response is to make sure that history is not taught properly in schools. And beyond that, the result our senators and our state legislatures, council members on our state on our city councils making decisions saying that it's okay to discriminate for any reason. Senator Mike Moon is an example of what happens when we tell ourselves a different story, when we choose to ignore the truth, the history. And that is exactly what the 1619 Project wanted us to do, is to embrace and acknowledge the history of this country. I mentioned before, COVID has given us an opportunity to build the 21st century, brand new world. We cannot move forward. So as long as people are trying to hide the truth. But I digress. This has been the Zach Sweets podcast. I greatly appreciate you sticking with me and uh, make sure you go check out my Instagram account, the Zach Sweets podcast. And uh, also, if you have any show ideas, want to be want to be on or what have you, email the Zach Sweets podcast at gmail.com. Until next time.